Welcome back to the Art and Science of Sound Healing. I'm your host, Thomas Orr Anderson, recording from my Cozy Mountain Cabin studio here in Sewanee, Tennessee, surrounded by thick, lush forests and beautiful waterfalls. Today we have a very special guest, me. This is in fact a sort of experimental episode as uh, due to my life circumstances, life is full, my life is full of lots of things besides this podcast. So for that very reason, it's been a little bit since I have had a new guest. So I figured I would take this opportunity to do something uh, related to what I have been doing and for the reason that an episode hasn't come out in a while and something that I believe is deeply relevant to the topic of this podcast series, i.e. deeply related to the art and science of sound healing. Yeah, that relationship being perhaps uh, unstatably subtle. And in fact, that's uh, sort of the essence of what we're talking about here. So to cut to the chase, I recently wrote a book. I wrote it about, I don't know, a few months ago in the late spring, I believe is when it was composed. And just, I've been kind of uh, taking my time working toward what I was going to do about publishing. There's a lot of different options and whatnot. And instead of waiting to come to sort of my final conclusion about whether I'll use a publisher or self-publish it, and if I use another a publisher, who would that be? Anyway, I decided to go ahead and print 111 copies that have no ISBN, no barcode, that are signed and numbered limited editions and will go out primarily to friends and family. So those books are going to arrive at my house in a couple days. So that's been what I've been busy doing is working with that book and getting it into its published format or its initial printing. So the book is called The Book That Swallows Itself. And I want to be clear, I'm not making this episode because I want it to be an advertisement for the book. Although that's a a fantastic side effect. Really, it's because the topics within the book are the things on which I've been deeply, deeply focused and their relationship to sound healing. Probably to some people will be obvious and to some people it might take a little bit of thought or contemplation, but it's uh, nevertheless real and also incredibly subtle, so subtle that it can potentially not even be conceived. And that's the point of the book. So the book's called The Book That Swallows Itself. And I'm going to start out by, first of all, reading what it says on the back. It says the book that, in the spirit of Socrates, exposes what we know by exposing what we do not. In the spirit of Plato, turns from the projections toward the thing itself. In the spirit of Alan Watts, 
approaches the deepest human concerns as a form of play. In the spirit of Spinoza, acknowledges the primacy of direct experience over theory. Weaving life stories, advanced science, and fundamental philosophy in musical webs, this book is an invitation back to our very nature. We never left. Read these pages start to finish and watch as the book swallows itself. And then somewhat comedically, beneath that on the back of the book, I have some uh, quotations, imaginary quotations from imaginary persons. The first one is a quotation from renowned author. It says, this book is about how I cannot say what this book is about, but I've been dancing since I read it. I'm going to repeat that because it's kind of uh, challenging wording. This book is about how I cannot say what this book is about, but I've been dancing since I read it. Next quotation is from famous expert. Famous expert says, he seems to erase every point he makes until it's clear that that's the whole point. Then the third one is from eminent philosopher. Reading this book is like spinning around to find my center, where the author seems to sit laughing with me. So now I'm going to read the introduction, and I haven't come out with an audiobook version of this, so presumably this will be the first time anyone gets to hear this in sort of an audiobook format. Don't worry, it's uh, you know only about in this in this manuscript form. It's only a couple pages. And this is all, just to warn you, this is all very similar to koans. It's very much uh, kind of central to, the topic of the book is centered around the same kind of experience invoked by a koan. And if you aren't familiar with a koan, a koan is a sort of somewhat meaningless question that a student in Zen training will focus upon until the question, in a sense, swallows itself. And this book is talking about that uh, experience in a lot of contexts, essentially. So, here we go. The Book That Swallows Itself by Thomas Orr Anderson Read by the author Chapter Zero Introduction of what value is an artwork but the experience elicited thereby? A dance can have no conclusion, no final move, for as soon as the movement stops, there is no dance remaining. There is no dance left to conclude. Where does your lap go when you stand up? Where does your fist go when you open your hand? Sometimes the very question swallows itself by exposing its own shadowy nature. Finding no answers, let us not plant ourselves in the belief that the unanswerable question serves no use. Let us see that another purpose yet exists. The value of such a question is not in its answering, but rather in the experience its asking elicits. The very act of recognizing the endless paradoxical loops within loops, at once heading both nowhere and everywhere, that act is in itself a direct experience, a genuine purpose for the asking.
Let us recognize that the ground is ever moving beneath us, and likewise the sky. Although we cannot stand on the wave, we can indeed surf. We cannot stop the dance, for the essence of that dance is movement. We cannot be what we are, but can rather only be becoming itself. As soon as any ripple arrives, just then it's retreating. Add up every number in the universe, from negative infinity to positive infinity. What is the sum of all that is? Precisely zero. But what is zero? Can we say what nothing is? Surely not. We can only say what nothing is not. Nothing is not this, not that, and not the other thing. We can only locate that silent center of the vortex by following indications of the ceaseless, ever-changing current that dances around its periphery. The circumference of a circle sings in perfect harmony of the one-dimensionless point that defines its each and every portion. This book is but a movement in that song. Let us approach it as an artwork. Let us ever attend to its details, only in so much as they invoke a direct experience. In the spirit of the secret of the golden flower, let us discover herein no direct statement of truth, but rather an acknowledgement of its unspeakable nature. And in the act of acknowledgement, let us find herein an endless spring of action, of experience of being, ever born from and ever returning to being. We could spend lifetimes adding up all the numbers in the universe and never reach the simple answer, zero. Or we could take a break from our incessant adding and subtracting and see, within the numbers themselves, and within the very actions of their endless manipulations and underlying order. That order encompassing each and every feature, element, structure, and conception. And by its very all-encompassing nature is made evident that it cannot be contained in its parts. Rather, it can only be reflected in them, in their structures and relationships, each reflection being a reduction, a compression, only a shadow of it. And let us also treat this book simply as an invitation, an invitation to the most luscious of feasts. The feast where we each are already seated, a feast of endless varieties of ever-changing flavors with no consistency but their harmony, a harmony ever singing of the chef's genius, of her love for cooking, her sense of beauty, the divine perfection so eloquently defined by her ceaseless flowing movements. And in the spirit of Wittgenstein, let us find here a philosophy about the death of philosophy, not a death that comes in time someday, but a death that is ever-present, a death that is ever-united with its birth, united as poles on one central axis around which the ceaseless vortex revolves. And perhaps most importantly, in the spirit of Spinoza, let us ever attend to the only central value of such explorations. Direct experience is all we seek here. By our very nature, we each love love. Such is our essence.
As much as this book reminds us of our love for love, just that much is it worth. If these pages inspire you to turn away from them and ever toward her, only then is our purpose rightly served. If this book is for you, then you shall surely know, just as it swallows itself. So that's the end of chapter zero, the introduction. <clears throat> that's pretty fun to read it to you that way. I like it. It's uh, delightful for me to read because I'm so familiar with its meaning. But I also recognize that its meaning is so subtle and cryptic that I suspect that a lot of it will slip by upon listening. But uh, nevertheless, perhaps that'll lead you to want to hear it again. So the first sentence of what value is an artwork but the experience elicited thereby, that essentially sets the tone for this book. It's not a book that's trying to tell you something, some bit of information or a bunch of information you can kind of keep in your information pouch and bust out at the, you know, your favorite opportunity. Here's something I know. I'm going to put it to use. Rather, the book is aimed at inducing an experience, not to give you information, but to invoke an experience by approaching this sort of secret silent center by dancing around it and by dancing around it in such a way that it can constantly reveals the fact that the thing itself the silent center is unspeakable the whole thing is unspeakable whenever we speak we can only say some relative <clears throat> part our words themselves our concepts themselves are necessarily only uh, parts of the whole that is the universe or that is the truth and so necessarily communication is inherently limited conceptions are inherently limited our thoughts are inherently limited but that doesn't mean that we can't access that center or that truth it just means we can't talk about it and we can't really even think about it and the good news is that essentially recognizing that in the deepest way in the i mean i'll reverse that in the deepest way recognizing that you can't say it you can't think it but you naturally no matter where you go or what you're doing are it that recognition experience in and of itself is medicinal and brings one to the state of experiencing that very thing that you can't talk about <laughs> it's really funny trying to talk about these things i can't talk about so <clears throat> after writing this book i i rereading it and going through and finding typos and formatting and reading it over and over and over and over and over and over again i bounced back and forth between sort of a embarrassment or something like oh my gosh i don't know what this is or do i like this and then pride where i'd feel wow this is really great this is so amazing 
And during that kind of, uh, yeah, that formatting process where I was reading it too many times in a row, but by necessity, I'd bounce back and forth between those kind of two poles of embarrassment and pride. But as that kind of settled and I kind of feel comfortable with what it is and and it's uh, what it's for and also its limitations, it's not for everybody in every circumstance, but I believe it's for a lot of people in a lot of circumstances. The, the one piece of sort of pride that has remained is essentially... I'm proud of the fact that it's a book that it's a book about how it's a book that talks about how it's a book that talks about how it can't talk about what it's about. That's tricky to understand, but essentially the book talks about itself and it talks about how it's a book that can't talk about what it's about. And um, that in itself is, is my favorite part in that the book itself represents and actualizes that very thing, that very paradoxical self-referencing, self-swallowing loop. The book really does, in a sense, if you understand it, if you follow it, and it gets kind of easier as we go, the, the rest of it's not nearly as cryptic as the introduction but it indeed does swallow itself and in, I find it induces one to want to put the book down and go dance or something. So I'll talk about a little bit more of this introduction and then leave the rest to you to consider. So one, you know, kind of silly sounding thing uh, that's early on in the introduction was where does your lap go when you stand up? Where does your fist go when you open your hand? I think the fist part I was first introduced to from Alan Watts. The lap part, I think I came upon earlier in my life, but maybe it also came from him. But it's this sort of ridiculous question. Where does your fist go when you open your hand? It's, it, it, it's a question that the more you think about it, you realize that there's a problem with the question. You try to find an answer. Where did it go? You know, try to picture where did your fist go? Did it suck back into your arm or did it disappear into the subtle vibrations of the universe as ripples expanding out everywhere? Or did it uh, disappear into our mind or into our memory? Or did it turn into a structure in our neural networks? Where did the fist go? You can follow it in those directions and they kind of just fizzle out is what I've found. But there's another thing that can happen. You can realize the absurdity of the question and then go on to realize the reason for the absurdity of the question. Why is that question absurd? Why does the question, where does my fist go when I open my hand? Why is that question faulty? what particularly makes it kind of messed up. And that thing that makes it messed up is that we conceive of a fist as a thing. It's this thing that you can kind of grasp the way that we think of a rock. We also think of our fist. But our fist really exposes 
really clearly the fact that it is not really a thing so much as a movement or a dance or uh, an action. It's it's more like, uh, yeah, a dance, a motion. So when we look at a rock, we think of it as this, you know, permanent structure, this thing. But that's just because we're seeing it in a time scale where it seems permanent. In reality, it is this uh, just an, an action. We're seeing one part of a very slow action. And if we look at our fist, it's easy to see. You know, you close your fist, open your fist, close your fist, it disappears, appears. But with a rock, it takes, you know, millions, billions of years, however long, I suppose millions. And uh, so we think of it as really solid. So the point being is to just examine the fact that the question, or just to let yourself feel the fact that the question is flawed because of how we look at things in this way where we're trying to grasp and hold on, to have something we can stand on. And, you know, it uh, leads to the, the saying, the, sometimes the very question swallows itself by exposing its own shadowy nature. And then points out that just because you can't answer a question doesn't mean it doesn't have any purpose. There's another purpose. There's a purpose for asking such questions in that they can induce a certain experience. And that experience can be this essential letting go, like there's a tension that lives naturally in the human brain, this want to understand, this want, it's like the engineer mind. It wants to create things, it wants to make things happen, it wants to comprehend things, it wants to put things in order. And that's very, very useful. We couldn't survive without that. But that same action of our mind to want to understand things, it has boundaries beyond which our conceptions, our language structures, the very functioning of our brains, of our minds, the very ways that we process and conceive of patterns, there's a limitation on it. And these kinds of questions can expose that limitation right there in the center of our attention. The limitation of our attention itself is exposed. So it's the exposure of the limitations of our attention to our attention. It's kind of like, uh, metaphorically, like humans observing the outer bounds of the observable universe. It's the universe itself seeing its own boundaries. Likewise, with these kinds of seemingly nonsensical questions, they lead us to an experience of our attention recognizing its own boundaries. And as it recognizes it, it essentially sort of swallows itself, this wanting to know, and we become surrendered momentarily or sometimes for longer periods of time to this state of mind, 
that is associated with meditation or with contemplation and presumably in its uh, potentially permanent form with what people might call enlightenment. So that's why, well, I can't say what I wanted to say. <laughs> that's the point of the book. So that's a little bit about the introduction. I'm going to back out of the introduction so that we can wrap up here and just bring it back to sound healing. What does this have to do with sound healing? The thing it has to do with sound healing, like I said in the beginning, it's subtle and difficult to conceive, which is you know very clear. The book makes clear it's all about the uh, limitations on our conceptions and leading us to recognize those as we approach it from every direction. So, th- so the connection from this to sound healing is obscured, but we can also uh, nevertheless make some sort of connection uh, or clarify a connection that perhaps can't be described well, which is that This is all about inducing an experience, a state of being, a state of mind, a state of a a sort of surrender to the universe, to the fact that we are the universe itself being us or acting us out. And that state is that meditative state where we're not thinking, where we're in the present moment, and where we are... Um, not grasping for the future, the past, not operating through hope and anxieties and regrets and fears, but rather operating simply and clearly and thoughtlessly and word wordlessly right in the present moment. And by all accounts from anyone I've ever uh, spoken with in depth about sound healing, that's, that state is fundamental to sound healing. So part of what we potentially are doing, or much of the time in sound healing, is helping to bring that state to the recipient. And it's the same with every great art, including sound healing, is that state, that flow state, or that centered state, that state of being in the moment, being very present is central to all of the great arts, including sound healing. And so I suppose uh, in retrospect, the connection is actually not so difficult to describe. It's really the experience itself that's difficult to describe. I hope all of you out there have that experience a lot. I hope that some of you might read this book. I think that you might enjoy it. And I appreciate your sticking with me through it and hearing the introduction and a little bit of discussion. Once again, that's the book that swallows itself by yours truly, Thomas Orr Anderson. And thank you for joining us on the art and science of sound healing. This edition of The Art and Science of Sound Healing is brought to you by Fisonics Sound Immersion Technologies, makers of the world's highest fidelity sound immersion systems. 
phisonics.com, P-H-I-S-O-N-I-C-S.com, phisonics.com.